Okay, are we rolling? Yeah. All right. Hey, this is Jim Roll from deep in the south of Ypsilanti, telling you that even in Ypsilanti, I get my longest antenna out to listen closely to W. About five seconds later. That was the Minutemen with a cover of Who Will Stop the Rain. Um, good evening. Welcome to the Living Writers Program. Um, I'm Amanda Yuli, your host for the summer of 2017, filling in for the wonderful T. Hetzel on Living Writers. We are live tonight in the WCBN studio at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. It's Wednesday, July 19th, and I'm so pleased that we have novelist and arts writer Lynn Crawford with us. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Amanda. <laughs> Thanks for being here with us on Living Writers. My pleasure. We are glad to have you. So um, you chose The Minutemen, Who Will Stop the Rain, to start us off. Yes. Do you want to tell us briefly why? I'm a huge fan of covers. Me too, I actually. I love covers. And I mean, Johnny Cash, those covers he did near the end of his career just made me love songs I never paid attention to. And um, I love the Minutemen's cover of that Creedence Clearwater song. That's beautiful. It's, yeah, and I love both those songs. They make they make they kind of play off each other. Yeah. So nice choice. Yeah, yeah you got you. me uh, interested again in covers. I was thinking about how um, I don't know if you know the band Yola Tango. Oh sure, yeah. They do lots of covers, Great covers in like yeah. the most beautiful way. Yeah. Um, but we're not here to talk about Yola Tango. We're here to talk <laughs> about Lynn Crawford. Um, Lynn is a novelist and arts writer living and working in Detroit. Her books include Solo, Blow, Fortification Resort, a selection of art-related sestinas, and the novels Simply Separate People and Simply Separate People Too. She is a Kresge Literary Arts Fellow and a 2016 Rauschenberg Writing Fellow. Her latest novel is Shankus and Kido, a saga. Did I pronounce it correctly? Kido. Kiddo. And kiddo. Yeah. Thank you. The whole time I was reading it, I was in my head um, mispronouncing it. Oh, so, well, maybe that's okay. Yeah. It's um, your cover. <laughs> it's my cover of uh, your book title. Um, well, we're so glad that you're here this Thank evening you. with us in the studio. And we're going to talk about this novel. And we're going to talk about the other writing you do and how you write and um, 
much more. But okay. I am wondering um, whether you could start us off by giving a short description of the novel um, for our listeners who maybe haven't picked it up yet. Sure. Um, Shankus and Kiddo is about two families, Shankus and Kiddo. And it's a lot about um, sort of intertwining sensibilities. And there's a lot about food, fashion, love, which it says on the quote on the back. But what I'm very interested in, I was very interested in the fictions that we tell ourselves, like the truths that we make up, the stories that we tell ourselves, and we so believe that they are true. You know, like, mom likes my sister better than me, or, you know, whatever it is, um, this is the right person for me, I'm, I'm great at this. And so often those truths become just fictions that we've made up, and that fascinates me. And the other thing I'm really interested in here is playing off male-female voice. And um, so those are two things that really interest me. Thank you for describing it. Um, yeah, I, I never want people to describe it so that the plot is given away or the ending is yeah. given and you didn't. So. <laughs> so tell me if you ever feel I'm approaching okay. that line. We don't have to go there. Um, so this book, if I understand correctly, is the first in what's planned to be four. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk any more about uh, what's to come? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I have the second one. It's about three quarters done. But, you know, ever, ever since I was young, I always found myself reading at the same time male and female authors. So like Barbara Pym, this British sort of spinster um, writer I read mm-hmm. along with Jim Harrison. Or I'd read like Virginia Woolf together with Dashiell Hammett. Um, I read, you know, Alana Ferrante next to Carl's Ove, is it Nelsgaard you pronounce yeah, the guy? Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm really interested in that balance of, of uh-huh. quote unquote male, female. Obviously things aren't that simplistic. And that's, that's sort of what each book explores. And I try to do it with voice and also with plot. Right, right. Tell me more about how you read. Um, it sounds like this is something, this is a way that you've read in the past and currently. You just mentioned some Absolutely. Cur- current folks. Yeah, I guess I guess I feel like I want the balance. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm a, a fiction and arts writer now, but until I was in my early 30s, I was a social worker. And I worked with mm-hmm. people who are homeless. I worked with people who had been diagnosed with um, various mental conditions where they had to be in hospitals. And I, I learned very quickly that there were so many sides to that story, the way they were treated. Right. You know, the thing, the thing that you were supposed to do with these people rarely worked. Right. Right. There were so many other ways to do it. So this idea of sort of balancing. And I think that's kind of why I started reading, you know, male, female writers at the same time. Uh-huh. Like, I didn't want to just be in one world. I wanted to yeah. understand the other world, too. Yeah. So it's just something I've always done. And I think that's apparent in this book. The other thing that got me about what you were just saying about social work is um, the notion of there not being one true answer, right? right. It's not science. Right. <laughs> Sometimes the best way forward is um, trying a few things or right. different ways, which is sort of that um, it's it's related to that idea you were mentioning about the stories we tell about ourselves or mm-hmm. whatever. They're sometimes shifting a little Absolutely. bit. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so this book, uh, as I was saying before, and as you were saying, it, it comes in, it, it's one of um, four eventually mm-hmm. planned. How did that um, come to, come about? Did you sort of, I guess I'm wondering whether you knew when you started working with these characters that this was uh, planned to be a multiple 
volume series or yeah, were there? Yeah, I mean, I wrote Simply yeah. Separate People and Simply Separate People too, which is which was a series also, but yes. not quite so connected. But th- this idea of family really interests me and family ties and family closeness and how things get intertwined. But also, most of the characters in this, if not all, have some passion, whether it's mm-hmm. food or writing stories or playing music or um, fashion, whether mm-hmm. it's making it or selling it. And I and I guess I sort of am obsessed with this idea of the redemptive quality of passion. Oh. You know, and it doesn't really matter uh-huh. what it is. And I think it's interesting, a lot of people my age, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong at all, but having been in the, in the social work field... Mm-hmm. And having had to do therapy with people and having had to be in it, I, I'm, I'm re- I was really interested in how, like, like when I worked with a lot of uh, clients in psychiatric hospitals, after a while, I could just tell they were so bored telling me their story. So I'd say, <laughs> you know what, let's do a writing workshop. Let's publish a journal. Let's uh-huh. do a play. Like, let's do something creative. Uh-huh. And let's find something in you that you like instead of uh-huh. talking about your problem all the time. Right. And it was wonderful. And so I guess I'm really interested in, you know, life can suck. It can be Nobody has a good day all the time, but if there's something that you just love to do, no matter what it is, if it's building a dollhouse or if it's playing music, and so these people, no matter where they dig themselves, they always find some way to get out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a real lesson about finding that redemption, finding that thing in your own life. How do do people do that? How How do, would you have advice? On that front? I don't know if I have advice. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have it, and some of them it's just private. Like if you go to someone's house and they're like, I have to show you my shoes, and they're like perfectly <laughs> arranged, and you're like, okay. <laughs> These you are know, your shoes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost like some people are public about it, and they're professional, and some mm-hmm. people it's just something they do at home, you know, mm-hmm. like knit or, <laughs> or maybe watch a certain TV show that they will tell you every single thing about every season. It's, it's really touching to me how I don't, I don't judge it. I'm just really moved. I find it incredibly touching, the things that inspire people right? Um, that, where they find a, a certain kind of a stimulation. Right. And it doesn't have to always be a big, obvious one, like a novelist or a rock star. It can just be, you know, a gardener or someone yeah. who, you know... Um, I think sometimes that's when people are at their most interesting. Right. I think that that finding that space for people is a lot like um, finding uh, what spoke to them as a child, whether it was the actual thing, but it's that zone that you get in as a kid where you can Mm -hmm. just throw yourself into it and it's just purely, it just feels right. Yeah. Um, And I loved how you handled it in the novel. I'm thinking of one character who's kind of surrounded by, in my view, some kind of high achievers and people are doing bold things like having restaurants and doing cool things. And then there's a character um, who works in a retail store. Meg. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I feel like the way that you've painted Meg and her passion, which is different and some might even say lesser than some of these other bolder ideas, it's so perfect. It really Mm. um, gives a a kind of human quality to her that I thought was so important and such a nice note in the novel. Oh, Do you, thank was you. It, tell me about, about that and how intentional that was. Well, I, I guess, I mean, so many children are diagnosed with learning disorders or with, uh, you know, attention deficit and they're given medication. And a lot of times those kids are incredibly perceptive. They're just not able to necessarily follow school rules. Mm-hmm. So when Meg, for example, is in class, it's not that she doesn't pay attention. She just looks at a seven and can't compute it in the equation, but she can see the bottom of the seven looking as a ballerina, mm-hmm. and the top horizontal part is the ballerina, 
you know, bent at the, the waist, t- right. basically. Yeah. So there's this fertile imagination going on constantly yeah. that we outsiders don't know, right? I mean, yeah. if you're a um, a teacher, you're you want your you, you want your student to do this equation. Sure. But then there's all these other amazing things that people daydream. If that's the word you want to use, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That mental landscape fascinates me. You did a nice job of not using the word daydream. I don't think you used the word daydream when you were yeah. describing Maggie. You were describing her as someone who is very smart and very creative and very yeah. important. Right. Um, but she had it comes to both school and then her work life and other things with a different, uh, different mm-hmm. approach. And her mother deals with her not by reprimanding her for getting bad grades, but by saying, you know what, let me take you to a store. Why don't you start building dioramas? Because this Mm -hmm. is how you process things. So instead of being punitive, um, you know, she offers her a solution. I liked that part. Thanks. Did you you build any dioramas when you were? I have zero. I can't do anything with my hands except (laughs) eat. I have zero. I can't build or draw or paint or anything like that that. is fascinating to me (laughs) I've known you for a while and I know you as very connected to the world of art and visual art Mm -hmm. and so I don't know that I consciously assumed that you had some art exercise in you or something that you did but that's not true visually but not I don't have the hand eye coordination (laughs) but I apparently I love other people who do (laughs) yeah and that's important too um I think we're gonna do a break and do a song Sure. And then you can tell us more about uh, the song that we choose. We're going to do a Billy Bragg song. Oh, great. And before we play it, we should say Billy Bragg will be appearing on this very program on the Living Writer Show on oh. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor in a few weeks. Wonderful. I think it's August. Frank will help me. August 24th. August 24th, I'm pretty sure. That week, <laughs> we'll have Billy Bragg on the Living Writer Show. Wow. For now, let's hear Must I Paint You a Picture by Billy Bragg. <laughs> Bad timing and me We find a lot of things out this way And there's you A little black cloud in a dress The temptation To take the precious things we have apart To see how they work must be resisted for they never fit together again If this is rain let it fall on me and drown me If these are tears let them fall Must I paint you a picture timing and me we find a lot of things out this way and there's you a little black cloud in a dress the temptation to take the precious things we have apart that was Billy Bragg singing, and mm-hmm. Lynn Crawford, our guest for today on Living Writers, um, chose that song. Lynn, tell us more about why you chose it. Well, first of all, a little black cloud in a dress has to be one of the best descriptions ever. <laughs> yes. Like, it's just fantastic. And again, this idea of 
must I paint you a picture? It's almost like our words not working. And in the first in the first sense, it's like, well, maybe a picture would be better. Like maybe some people can paint pictures and express something more than words. So it, it just and plus his voice is so great. Yeah. But yeah. And it works for this book. Yeah. And for you too. You know, we were just talking before the break about um your career other than in mm-hmm. fiction writing. Um you're an arts writer. Yes. So yes. can you tell us more mm-hmm. about what you've written and, and how yeah. you write? So I um when I lived in New York, I was working as a social worker, but I had a lot of friends who were artists and I I looked I saw a lot of art. And then when I moved to Detroit um, about 24 years ago, there I was fascinated by the art scene, fascinated. It's nothing like it is now, but there were so many interesting things going on, mostly underground. And um, like in little galleries here or there, there was obviously the DIA. And a friend of mine in New York was like, nobody's writing for art in America about Detroit. Would you consider doing it? So I started doing it. I was not educated, but um, as a... I was not trained, let's put it that way. As an artist or As an, an artist or art writer. historian. But I felt like at that time, Detroit was depicted so badly. Like when I said I was moving from New York to Detroit, it was like, what? You know, And what? 24 years ago, that it, was a different kind of... But still, it was a beautiful place. Of course. And it was always very been a easy. Place. Right. And, I, and people would make fun of it and, you know, oh, you're going there. I mean, it was very, very like okay to make jokes about Detroit. And then I'd see this art. I'm like, wait a minute. People have to know about this. People have to know that people are living and working here and making beautiful work. And it's not all the same. It's really diverse. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then about 15 years ago, when Marsha Myro and Suzanne Hilbury wanted to get MoCAD going, they asked me to be involved in founding it. So for about five years, we sat at each other's kitchen tables figuring mm-hmm. out how to get this building. Do we need a contemporary art museum? We didn't have a building. We, didn't have, we weren't sure. And then over time, we, we got all that. So we're, MoCAD's going to have its 10th anniversary this fall. Congratulations. So, MoCAD yeah. is a great place. Yeah. 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 Well, it, what strikes me most about the story you just told is how bold it is for a person. It sounds like you weren't publishing writing or doing much writing Mm-mm. before, and then you started writing for Art in America. Yeah, well, I yeah. was. Yeah, I had a, a good friend, and then, mm-hmm. but nobody else was doing it. I mean, there was no one else here. Probably they would have loved someone else, but, <laughs> but no. In fairness, I stuck uh-huh. with it, and I. Sure. And now, I mean, and then I wrote a book um, of Sestina's responding to visual art because I really like writing creatively to, about yes. art more than reviews. Yes. So I sort of shifted away from the from the reviews and more uh-huh. um, fiction and and poetry, but. It's astonishing how good it was. And I just felt like I, it, maybe it was part of my social worker, maybe, you know, mentality. It's like, I've got to represent these people because they're amazing and no one's paying attention. Yeah. Um, and so now you just kind of, you were social worker. You just kind of picked up writing for. I was always an avid reader. Yeah. I mean, I was that kid where my mom would be like, go outside and play. Yeah. Get outside. And <laughs> Stop I Stop reading. And I'm like, no, I want to read. You know, I and so I was always familiar with language and reading mm-hmm. and I wrote in diaries and mm-hmm. I always I mean I always wrote but not fiction or art criticism till I was in my early 30s and mm-hmm. my first book was published when I was 34. Mm-hmm. So and so you know to me when I look at those two disciplines fiction writing and effectively journalism writing about mm-hmm. you know arts events and artworks um, those are so different um, that, to me. I mean, I, I look at, um, you know, when I was first interested, when I was in college in journalism, I thought um, how much I liked writing. But then I realized writing and reporting and journalism, they're so, they, they feel, felt so different to me at the time. And I wonder if you've experienced those as very different things. Well, I'll tell you, that's a great question. 
And I, I don't blame anyone who doesn't like my art writing because I'm really not a journalist. Like, I'm, like if you read it, it's very creative. <laughs> it's not creative. about whether people like it. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is some people might say, rightly so, this is not art journalism. It's not art criticism. It's not even art history. It's more like I will, I will sort of free associate and find something in it that I respond to. So I don't think I'm a very good traditional journalist. I think I'm more creative because I don't think I can be. I think journalism's wonderful. Yeah. I just don't think I have that gene. Or, that's not you. Yeah. And that's not, not how your art writing yeah. works. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a good separation. That's good to know. Um, so in in fiction writing and in writing uh, this novel and the ones that you have coming out, does this feel like kind of that redemptive thing for you, that true place where you are at your best? I feel like every single fiction I write is a love letter to literature. I just I love literature. Um, you know, I'm one of those. I will read like those big fat novels that come out. Like I love Zadie Smith. I love Donna Tartt. I love, you know, Ramon Cano. I love more obscure writers, Marguerite Dura. I just I love to read. And so what I hope I do in my books is um, show how much I love to read. And I try to mention works that mean a lot to me somehow and mm-hmm. just kind of make it into a tapestry. Yeah. 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 Well, um, Tapestry is such a good word to to describe kind of my impression, um, having read the book, having finished it a few days ago. Mm. Um, I loved how I don't the word nonlinear isn't isn't good, I think, uh, to describe it. I think you you would have a better one. But I love the kind of layers um, that you had in the characters and in um, the the kind of impressionistic quality, I guess I had of Mm. uh, the events in the book and the and the characters. Is that um, I mean, it was poetic to me in many ways. Is that how you um, how you would describe it, or do you have a better? That's a great question. Um, somebody described it as cubist portraits. Oh, okay. And yeah. actually, I think that's a pretty accurate description. Um, maybe clear portraits or clear scenes that do connect, but maybe not completely linearly. Right. Um, and maybe in that way, they are visual. I think it's a very visual you know. book. Goodness, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, I, I loved that. I loved, um, you know, if you think about even the term a saga that you have here, yeah. <laughs> that reminds a reader of a more traditional narrative where something yeah. happens and then something else happens and then um, you're kind of led through the action that way. But that's not how I experienced this book. Um, as a reader, I mean, for one thing, we have flipping through time mm-hmm. um, in multiple different layers and levels. Um, was that difficult to achieve or how did you? Well, I think, you know, if, if you think about it, if you think of like Mrs. Dalloway, that great Virginia Woolf novel, you know, it's a day, right? And she thinks backwards and she imagines forward, she anticipates. And I think most of this, us, that is how we think. Like most of oh, us yeah. in the course of a, you know, any period of time, we're flipping back and forth between different time zones. And that really fascinates me. Um, and it's almost like, it's like to corral everything into A through Z. I mean, that can, there's great books that do that. Sure. Um, but it's also a different type of a, a thing. It's almost like maybe idealized in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Whereas this can be, um, it's, it's tricky to keep things complicated and clear at the same time, where they don't blur into total meaningless. That's a real interesting point to me. Like, when does it lose it? Mm-hmm. Oh, it didn't lose it at all. <laughs> um, but but definitely you're sort of inside the heads of these different people and different family members in the two families. And um, it, it does feel like in what is effectively a pretty short book, 
how many pages? 130, 140. Yeah. Um, you're spanning um, years and years, generations, mm-hmm. um, and really getting a meaningful look inside those characters' heads over many, many years. And it's mm-hmm. kind of remarkable how uh, few words you were able to do that in. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, it was boiled <laughs> down perfectly well. Um, so in thinking about all that sort of all that time that was covered and all the events that happened in the book, did you, this is a process question, did you um, plot out all those events and all those things that happened over many years? I didn't. I have a very um, sort of unorganized working style. And it's funny because the book is, as you said, small, but it's condensed from a lot. And I'll just sometimes, you know, write down a sentence and see where it takes me and then see how it fits in. Um, so I'm not, I, I am, and I try to read things out loud and my ear sometimes edits. Tell me more about your process. I, I love that idea of well, I you know, I, I, I read out loud, I edit, I edit out loud. As you can tell, I'm very verbal. So when I write, I have to be disciplined because if I talk, I'm just, Bleh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm Greek. And so I'm just like anything. So I have to be very clear that I'm not doing that. And I, and I try to find rhythm, you know, I, I, I try to find rhythm and sometimes I will edit just through the rhythm, but it's, it's not poetry at all. I mean, I'm not a poet and I'm really interested in plot and I love plot. Um, and, uh, but I guess I just, I, I write down a lot of sentences that I think about and I look at them and then I just sort of, sometimes the plot goes that way. Um, I've never written in a male voice before. This was... So first. Dino, the character, yeah. um, it was the first male voice that I that I wrote, and and I read a lot of Dashiell Hammett. I read a lot of Jim Harrison, you know. I read a lot of um, Chester Himes, you know. I read a lot of sort of like detective, hard boiled, you know. And um, and and when you were writing again, back to the process and the structure of this book, um, we should say first that it it happens in the chapters are from a different perspective, mm-hmm. um, each one. Were you bouncing back and forth between a Meg chapter and a Dino chapter, or did you? Were they sort of a complete whole? I don't want to say standalone because I know that it's part of a bigger whole. But do they feel separate to you, or do they feel? I felt like they were pieces of a puzzle, mm-hmm. and that and that you could get one person's story and have an opinion, and then get the other person's perspective and have a different opinion. And I just felt like they're different stories, just fit, like interlinked somehow. Interlinked um, is, is right. Yeah. 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 That's how I experienced it too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, I think we'll hear another song. Great. And then I think, <laughs> um, Lynn, if you're willing, I'd love to have you read for a little sure. bit. Yeah. Um, so we'll think about what the best uh, selection is for you to read okay. to our listeners. You are listening to the Living Writers Program on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Uh, we're here with Lynn Crawford tonight. Um, and I'm Amanda Yuli, your guest host for the summer. Right now we're going to hear Sly and the Family So. Excuse me, Sly and the Family Stone. (laughs) It's a family affair. Let's hear it. Somebody that just loves to learn And another child grows up to be 
Somebody you just love to burn Mom loves the both of them You see it's in the blood Both kids are good to mom Blood's thicker than the mud It's a family affair That was Sly and the Family Stone. I'm Amanda Yuli, your guest host for The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Our guest this evening is Lynn Crawford, um, who is here with us in the studio in Ann Arbor, and she is going to read a little selection from her novel, Shankus and Keto. Keto, right? Did I pronounce it correctly? Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's no correct. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, here's Lynn. Okay. So I'm going to, um, you're very well taken point that uh, you don't like when people give things away in novels. And I've had that experience on book tours with this book. So I'm going to start from the beginning. That. No. That's the so worst thing. The right? beginning. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone should yeah. be picking up this book. We should talk about where it's available locally as well, okay. especially when you're done. <laughs> okay. Um, All right, so um, the the song that starts this one off is um, People, People Who Need People Are the Luckiest People. Um, and I don't know if anybody like me grew up hearing Barbara Streisand sing that, but I sure <laughs> did. Uh, so this is Eile Shankus. Some things seem impossible until they happen to you. Acne. A long kiss, heartbreak. I don't consider the comfort and constrictions of my close-knit family, our small town, and the sense of purpose and direction they provide until I leave. Senior year, high school, overseas culinary program. The acceptance with full scholarship is a big deal for me and our community. I'm 17. I travel alone arrive before classes start. My mom planned to join me those first weeks, but we decide I should go alone, gain independence, meet people, visit museums, markets, a pool, taste street food, spring for a nice meal, maybe even get invited to a private home. I fly alone and tear up as the plane takes off. Embarrassed, I spend the flight pretending to sleep until the meal, which includes a fantastic wedge of cheese comes. I navigate the airport and bus lines to my new address. I meet the concierge who leads me up several steps of stairs and tells me not to drink water from the tap. She lets me into my assigned attic room, gives me a key, and leaves me sitting on my new room's scuffed floor. I'm slammed with a complex set of emotions, unprepared. Can I live in this place a whole year? And how am I supposed to hydrate? Excited, I'm going to learn how to cook, really cook, from experts. 
By the way, I have a small victory at the airport. After I retrieve, retrieve my luggage and find and board the correct bus, the bus driver asks me for the fare, but I don't have it. Why? Lost backpack. I retrace my steps, find it hanging on the toilet stall peg, and believe this is a good sign. Then, on the new bus, I meet a guy, my age, super handsome, who does not look American, but turns out to be. His name is Dino, and he is here to study food. More on him later. The first few days, I wander around this new city, totally wishing Mom were here, so happy she's not. I'll miss home. Miss cooking on Sundays after church and before choir. Miss gardening, baseball, tending our bees. Miss how my laundry smells. Miss sleeping, studying, playing music in my bedroom with its flowered paper, the dresser and shelves Dad built, my books. I recite them here when lonely. Good night, moon. Invisible man. Nancy Drew. Fear of flying. Their eyes were watching God. Bleak House, Suzuki Bean, If Beale Street Could Talk, All of a Kind Family, Harriet the Spy, The Godfather, Wuthering Heights, Mrs. Pigglewiggle, Anna Karenina. I miss my books, and also miss going to Friday night football, fitting in, having friends, being considered a part of something. Yet, I sense potential for personal and professional expansion. Realize how little I know. This city values beauty in ways I don't understand. My clothes feel wrong and food portions are modestly sized and gorgeously prevent, presented. I develop mixed feelings about things I never thought of before. Dad's toothpicks and belly laugh. Mom dressing in Dad's button-up shirts, not just at home but out shopping. People who speak only English and understand only our town and county, but not the wider world. The fact we're so serious about church and our iced drinks. These thoughts make me feel guilty, traitorous, but I need them. I don't have anywhere to put them. Plus, I spend complicated time with Dino and have no one to talk to about that. Community and conversation never seemed like a big deal, but in their absence, they are. At home, we chat constantly, but only during things, like driving, folding, gardening, cooking, mowing, canning, when we're likely to be interrupted, unlikely to make eye contact. Here, people engage or seem to, they walk arm-in-arm arm or sit heads bent together smoking, talking, sipping from small cups and glasses. Also, they read and write in public, wear v-necks, scarves, <clears throat> slim-fitting pants and skirts. I want to be with them. Actually, to be honest, and this might sound creepy, I want to be them. I don't know where to go with that urge. The sensory intake puffs up, puffs me up, and I feel as if I've swallowed something porous, stubborn, indigestible. I meet a few people, some connected to my program, others at the swimming pool. Thank you, Lynn. Um, my, you know, uh, very few 17-year-olds, uh, I think, in real life or in literature would uh, say what <laughs> I, what Eileen did um, about the wedge of nice cheese on the airplane, <laughs> which I think was such a perfect um, sensory detail to give that window into into her. Um, and we see in the, in the part you read and later in that chapter, we see um, 
her maturity in some ways. She has this forward thinking, like, this is good for me. This is, I'm going to learn things. And um, she's extremely wise, I think, for a young person. And she's driven by her passion, which is food. And yeah. that, that's true <laughs> throughout the book. Um, I want to talk about food because you yeah. do so much <laughs> in the book that is sensory. Um, and I feel like the, all the taste stuff is there with the food. We can talk about the fashion part in, in a few minutes because that was the other thing that really got me. But tell me about how you experience and how you sort of translated that uh, visceral taste food stuff in the book because it's huge. It's a beautiful part of it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. You know, um, actually, I'm happy you said that. There's a, I have a good friend in Detroit named Ben Hall who um, he runs the Russell Street Deli along with Jason Murphy and Andrew Mayhall. And they also have this great art space called Young World. And they're and they're he's really into sh- being a chef and sustainable food. And he said, "You didn't miss a beat with the food." Yeah. And I said, "That is the best." That's true. That is that's my biggest compliment. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you, Ben Hall. Um, I'm just fascinated by food, and I guess you know if you read a lot of older books, you know there's so much landscape writing, you know, and if you read, you know, there's the raging sea or the you know the or the frightening woods or the the smelly river, you know, whatever kind of landscape. I mm-hmm. guess food, I just was using it as a landscape. And I love food. I mean, I love food. I love cooking. I love eating. I love I love talking about it. I, lo- I think some of the great literature are cookbooks. Me too. I yeah. love cookbooks. So, yeah. Yeah. You and too? I think food is this way of learning about a family, for one thing. If oh. Once you know what people are eating for dinner and how they're eating dinner, are they eating all together? Are they all yeah. eating on their own schedule? Are they eating fresh stuff or not so fresh stuff, you know more, right? That's about true. Yeah. A family. So I think food is is very important. Um, and I think that wedge of cheese line stuck with me. Um, and so did another one that I felt like was a glimmer of the Midwest kind of coming through in the book. <laughs> I think it was um, beef, corn, and milk that you talked oh, about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> more than once. Right, yeah. Sort of like that, the triumvirate yeah. of maybe the Midwest <laughs> eating the beef, corn, and milk. Um, but I think that's really, um, it, it really tells the reader what you're talking about and who you're talking about yeah. um, in oh. important ways. So thank you for making food such a part of your book. Oh, thank you. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going back to that, to the beef, corn, milk thing. Um, that's a list. And I found myself again and again seeing lists in your writing. We heard it when you were mm. listing the bookshelf in Eileen's memory. Um, are you a list maker? No. But, you know, I think that, as I've said, I am not a poet. Um, I really like plot and I like sentences and I like stories. But I also do like that thing where the reader has to come up with their own idea or image or something so if you just if you if you put beef corn milk you know some people might think about a hamburger someone might think of a filet mignon someone might think of you know a corn on the cob someone might think of cream corn someone might think of milk to drink someone might think of ice cream like I just sort of feel like every it gives people freedom to kind Mm -hmm. of invent their own stimulation for whatever that word triggers yeah which is what I guess poetry sometimes sure pretty much does like really strip down language yeah so I like to intersperse I mean not that that's poetry but sure to intersperse that with plot I feel like it's also a rhythm device if like a plot is kind of racing along and somebody's going to Paris and this and this and she lost her bag and she met a guy and then you have to stop with a list so it kind of paces it paces the narrative somehow 
Well, I think the different narrators were very distinct for me. But one thing I one thing they all do is kind of make these lists in places oh, for me. Yeah. Um, and again, it added to that sensory quality of the book because you're sort of getting um, examples of real tangible things in their lives, mm. whether it was the sensory, you know, the food things. There's another one. Um, I wish I could remember the third one. It was lavender figs and. Oh, yeah. Um, quirk. Um, yeah. I can't remember. I know what you're talking about. It was. Yeah. But again, it was it brings um, a really tangible sense to the reader of what's right. going on. And, yeah. and you know, I I thought that you did the same thing with clothing in, in a few cases. Mm. And, and fashion is part of what some of the characters, what's meaningful to some of the characters, mm-hmm. and what isn't meaningful to others. I mean, it was really clear when you described somebody wearing um, like baggy pants and Crocs, and I don't know, I don't know if the, the shirt chef. was stained. It's the chef, yes. right? Eileen, the chef. That's um, her uniform. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, but, but yeah, there were not just lists, but sort of examples of what are the garments like. And, and the reader was rarely left wondering, like, what kind of shoes is she wearing? Because you knew and it gave <laughs> you this good sense um, that that was a driving force. Can you talk about fashion and the way that you just talked about food? Yeah. I mean, again, I think just fashion, it fascinates me. And Linda Dresner, who owns this iconic store in Birmingham. She used she also used to have one in New York, but she's one of the first people who sold Comme de Garçon in um in the Detroit area and these really interesting, like cutting edge designers. And I met her because she was on the MoCAD board and she still is on the MoCAD board. And I never had paid much attention to clothes, but she knew so much and her store had these beautifully constructed things and I realized, oh, these are just as complex as anything. But um and and it's also the thing about food and clothes is sometimes we receive them. It's like whatever, whatever's on the table, I'll eat. Whatever's on sale, I'll buy. Whatever's in my drawer, I'll wear. And then it's sort of like, well, then on the other extreme, there's a sort of obsessiveness. No, I only have gluten, dairy-free, you know, maple syrup sweetened, you know, desserts <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, it, it's an obsession. Or no, I only wear this designer or I only wear the, you know, and so it becomes, it can become a fetish, right? So on the mm-hmm. one hand, you can just be passive and then it can become like a fetish, especially for wealthy people, like, you know, who With can afford and fashion. Exactly. Right? Who can afford like organic, you know, Everything. non-GMO and, and, you know, perfectly right and so it's this interesting thing where between there's it's like thoughtless on the one hand you're receiving and then it's over the top like which happens in capitalism all the time it's like Mm -hmm. things just go way too far and what what is this sort of in-between area where it hasn't been ruined yet (laughs) right you can kind of make a decision but it's Uh not like gonna be unattainable to most human beings (laughs) you know good way to put that (laughs) okay um so my impressions again: the food, the the fashion, and the final F in that list <laughs> is family. Yeah. Um, and you you spoke a bit about this at the beginning of the program, um, but I'd love for you to talk more about um, the ways that people in this book are connected to their families, not just their immediate household family that they live in. Um, but I was really struck by a sense of. Um, who people's ancestors are and what that mm-hmm. meant to them, how they were carrying on or not carrying on kind of family, either a family business or a family tradition. Um, tell mm. me about how conscious that was a choice or whether that just felt like a natural flow of building those characters. I, you know, I think Jim Harrison's a writer who really writes beautifully about family where things can be, there's always this kind of love and loyalty, despite the fact that there's deep, 
deep issues and screwed upness, you mm-hmm. know. And I remember Martin Amos one time said a really great thing about um, mm-hmm. about writing. Somebody was asking why he didn't write about the dissolution of one of his marriages, and he said, "Well, my wife, my ex-wife didn't want me to, and that's good enough for me." You know, and I guess I just there was a sort of period where it seemed like people were writing books, kind of outing the grim side of of families and of you know my father did this to me, and not not that that's not interesting and important, mm-hmm. but um, and there's obviously people who've grown up in horrible families, but I think that sometimes having a levity about like about family and ties and love was just something I. I wanted to show, but I, I do think I'm really influenced by Jim Harrison in that way. I really like how he writes about families. Wow. Um, and, you know, and I also think sometimes you can either, you know, and again, having worked as a social worker and sort of having been trained to, you know, like help people, sometimes that just becomes like telling them, well, you should separate from your mother or you mm-hmm. should don't talk to your sister or that was demeaning what your father did to you instead of maybe just having a sense of humor about it. Like sometimes a <laughs> sense of humor can go a long way to heal. Yeah. And it doesn't make the thing right or wrong. But if you can laugh about it, obviously you can't laugh about everything. But I think there's mm-hmm. lots of things we can laugh about and not take so seriously. So sure. Um, and I come from a huge family and I, you know, um, I have a lot of siblings and cousins and um, parents and step parents, and so I guess maybe I'm I'm also channeling that a little bit. It's part of your experience of families, yeah. is that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, that's that's good to know. It's good insight into how the sort of family relationships work. Because, um, well, I think there was the book. I think was suffused with joy and and levity. I, I hadn't picked up on that part with families, but now that you're saying mm. it, that really is true. I took. Um, the family parts to be almost a little more serious. I mean, the characters in the book to me really take seriously their Mm -hmm. connection. And I'm thinking about the family business a little bit and the sort of inevitability of those connections um, seemed really strong to me. Um, Yeah. And how do you, um, if you're groomed for something, sort of move away from it if it's not really you? Like, how do you, you know, um, uh, it also, it also, if if the families were close, it kind of gave me freedom to talk about the other things instead of the mother that doesn't want her child to do something like that. That doesn't exist, just, except for they didn't want Dino to go to Paris, but you know, right. but yeah, but he did, and that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so good to talk to you, Lynn Crawford, Thank you. about families and fashion and food and your book. Um, which is available. Can you give us a quick rundown of where in Detroit and around and surrounding areas it is available? For... Honestly, right now, yes. I'm so embarrassed to say this. Don't be embarrassed. It's only available on Amazon. And that I will, okay. I will tell you why my, by the way, I just have to say, this is my first book that I published in Detroit. Um, I published all my other books in New York, but this wonderful woman, Maya Asak, who runs this beautiful bookstore, Ditto Ditto published this, but the bookshop shut down. Oh, yes. She's a poet. She's a musician. She's fine. She's doing plenty of other things. Yes. And so right now it's just available on Amazon. Which is why we need to talk about it. So go to Amazon yeah. okay. and look for Lynn Crawford <laughs> and her fabulous books. Um, we're going to hear one more song. And okay. then Lynn, we're going to close with right. you telling us a little bit more about what you're working on next. Okay. And um, more from Lynn. This is the Living Writers Program on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. And let's hear from Johnny Cash. Oh. Why not? It's Another always a good cover. time. Yeah. Another cover. Is it getting better 
Or do you feel the same? Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You said one love, one life. When it's one need in the night, one love, we get to share it. It leaves you, baby, if you don't care for it. Did I disappoint you? Leave a bad taste in your mouth You act like you never had love And you want me to go without Well, it's too late Tonight To drag the past out Into the light I've never heard that, and I want to hear the whole song now. I know. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> so good. I have uh, fond uh, memories from long ago of that U2 song. So that is Johnny Cash covering U2. Yeah. Where does that exist? You must know. This is yeah, it, album. You know, he did, I think, three or four albums of covers near the end of his life. And I you know, I never cared for the song. I never thought one way or the other about it until he... He does it better. Yeah. Can we say that about U2? I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of these songs, yeah. I mean, it... And it's interesting. Like, that's why I love covers. I mean, he just, yeah, he knocks it out of the park. Yeah. He does, yeah. As, as he will do, as Johnny <laughs> Cash will do for us. Um, so to close our hour on Living Writers with Lynn Crawford, um, I'd love to talk more about reading. You know, we started talking mm. earlier about how you read. I'm incredibly impressed. If, if I understand correctly, you're reading two novels at a time sometimes, mm-hmm. two different perspectives, maybe male, female, yeah. or different perspectives. I'm a big reader, too, and, mm. but I never can really balance two novels. Like there can be novels and short stories. Well, let me say one after the other. Okay. Like I just read Zadie Smith's Swing Time, which I loved. And then I read a book called The Knicks Uh um, by Nathan Hill, which I loved. So I guess they're two big, beefy novels. Two big novels. Gorgeous. And so maybe one after the other. Okay. Female, male. Yeah. And what are you reading now? Like when you, I don't know if you read at night or... I am... I'm actually reading the la- the Lost Child, which is the last Alana Ferrante okay. book, and I'm and I'm terrified because I don't know what I'm going to read after. I've been saving it for <laughs> no. so long. So if you have a suggestion, please tell me. I haven't read those yet, and everyone oh. keeps telling me. I just read um, Troubling Love. Did you read that? No, by her. It was her first novel. Oh, it's a short novel. No, I haven't. And it's quite something. I've been daunted by the idea of like all four of those books and the expectations are high. So I um, oh. I jumped into her kind of 120 page book or so, which well, maybe I'll go to that. Yeah, I think okay. that I just recommended one for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you. So do you read nonfiction at all? Not so much. Yeah, not so much. I'm a fiction reader. I'm kind of the same. Yeah, I don't. I don't read a lot of nonfiction. My husband gets me in on a little bit of nonfiction now and then, and I like journalism and reporting. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, my books are always uh, always novels and short stories. <laughs> um, so I'd love to talk to you about what you're writing next. I know reading sort of feeds into that always. Well, so the new book is called Paula So Far, and it's coming out this spring. And it was based on. There's a great, great. It's a novel. It's a detective novel. And Peter Williams, who's a, a great painter who used to live in Detroit but now is in Delaware, um, who I've written a lot about, 
I've written a lot of stories responding mm-hmm. to him. Um, it started off with he had a painting called Pussy Galore from the James Bond series. Mm-hmm. And I, I wrote a story about it, an, an anagram of Pussy Galore is Paula Rigasi. Oh, okay. So I developed this character, sort of a James, a female James Bond type, and I basically um, this it's it's a detective novel, but each chapter responds to a visual artwork or place in Detroit. But you wouldn't necessarily have to know that, like it reads as a straight novel. Okay. But um, it's my way of even more intimately connecting with visual art because I feel like when I review art, I'm just like in school and I'm not that great at it. Oh. And writing, you know, writing poetry about, you know, Sistina, it's okay. But I feel like <clears throat> writing this novel and, and each artist is a dear friend of mine. Oh. So I'm, I'm, I'm very close friends with them as well as, as and, I've, and I've looked at all the work a long time. So it's okay. really meaningful to me because I feel like I really get this work. And, I, and, I, and maybe a little bit of the, my analytic background is I see something in the work that maybe my friend doesn't see. Right. You know, you know, and I love that. I love when somebody who comes on top of you and says, I see you're doing this and you don't see it. So that's what that book is, Paula, so far. I can't even, I want you to talk about it a little more because I can't even imagine a detective novel format and artworks. I just am so because intrigued. It's, you know me. what it is? It's. It's basically sensing something in the novel. Like there's an artist in Detroit named Cheeto Johnson Mm -hmm. who did this amazing thing called Stare Down. There's a permanent Copernicus sculpture across the street from the DIA. And he made a sculpture of um, Altuzzi, who's a Persian um, astronomer or thinker. I'm probably bungling this right now. But he he was right across from Copernicus. So this Persian Eastern great man thinker and Copernicus are facing across Woodward. And there's that interplay. And it's called the stare down. So I just became obsessed with the space in between. But if you read the chapter, it's basically you wouldn't really connect it. But there's something about that space in between. And that's kind of what I did. It's almost like, you know, when you have a really good friend, you don't need to start at step one. You kind of get, you start at step 20 when you sit down to dinner with them for a glass of wine. So I feel like these are all artists that I know their work so well. Mm -hmm. That, um, but but it is also this character Paula, and she's uh, a crime fighter. And there's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of crime. There's a lot of, um, you know, I'm fascinated with detective novels. So anyway, that's um, going to come out next spring again by Ditto Ditto. Ditto Ditto again. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good to know. Um, tell me about about how you write. Um, we haven't talked about that yet, and I feel like people always want to know from writers, what does it look like? Are you in your home? Are you in a cafe? Is it late at night? Do you listen to music? This music that we heard, like, what does it look like when Lynn is uh, writing a novel? Well, you know, that's very personal to me. Um, really? Is this a 56 minutes into the hour I asked you a personal question? <laughs> I, I feel so sorry. Answer. I just, I mean, my kids, I, I just, they, you know, poor I would some, would sometimes get up in the middle of the night and write. When now I have an office, but um, I'm glad to hear that. I, I try. I do really well when I'm in a routine. Sometimes yes. life just doesn't allow for a routine between family and work and of everything else. But I, I try to be in a routine. I always have stacks of book around books around, mm-hmm. and I I can't write in a cafe because I really do have to read my work out loud. I have to edit out loud. Oh, I have to I have to read it. Otherwise, uh-huh. it has to be connected to the ear. So it has to be private. Uh-huh. Um, 
So in the middle of the night, I used to. I try not to do that anymore. But I would get up That's and intense. I'm like, no one's bothering me. There's no, no phone me. ringing, and I can. Uh-huh. I'm total quiet. And yeah. then I would wake up in a great mood. And but I, I don't recommend that. And that's no, why I hate no, no, to no. tell people, like, don't do what I do. <laughs> I, I mean, you you said it was personal. So tell me if it's too personal to ask this. But were you actually setting an alarm and trying to get up? No, were you, your no. thoughts were waking you. No, I was. I, I have this crazy. You know, I do yoga at six a.m. in the morning. I have free years and years so sometimes I would get up at like two and I would just work before you you know it just you know it seemed to work at the time and um I would never set an alarm okay (laughs) but I think there's something about the privacy and you know as a mother and someone who works sometimes it's hard to get that mental space that's just yours it's impossible sometimes yeah 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 Yeah. so I'm always looking for techniques that's part of why we ask this question I never (laughs) I've never heard anyone say middle of the night but I appreciate it um so my last question is um more about uh, the writing process and about aspiring writers. Um, you know that my work is with mm. 826 Michigan with young writers, mm. um, but there are many writers who are even not so young who are just starting or are thinking about writing and who want to write. Um, do you have advice? Yeah, I just, I really firmly believe that everyone should read their work out loud and really become connectly, intimately connected with their work. And I'm not a fan of the the writing workshop. Um, because I feel sometimes like people get knocked down and their feelings get hurt. And sometimes things that maybe should be evolving don't evolve the way they should be. And I think all of us, I mean, I don't care how great a writer you are. I'm sure you have things that you just cringe when you look at. And so I guess what I feel like is there's a responsibility of just spending the time doing it. And, you know, water that garden. Like you got to yeah. go every day and you got to weed it and water. And, you know, there's this great line from um, Stendhal, the playwright, 20 lines a day, genius or no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you if you can't do more than that. But I do think um, depending too much on what other people say, for me, has not worked. And I don't know that it always works for people. I think you've got to find your your soul and uh, and trust yourself. That's you know. such good advice. That's such good advice. And it really is different from much of the advice that young writers hear. They hear about showing it around and getting input. But um, there's something really valuable about being yeah. authentic and being yourself yeah. and keeping at it. I agree. Which you have done. <laughs> um, Lynn Crawford, thank you for joining well, us thank you. on it's Living Writers today. It yeah. has been a pleasure for me. Um, Lynn's new novel is Shankus and Quito, a saga. Um, The book is available on Amazon.com. And we are so pleased that you joined us today. We're going to close out with a song that you chose, the last one. It's by Joan. I don't know how to pronounce it. Joan Armitrading. Armitrading. Tell me about Joan. Can you talk about the song a little bit? This was just, you know, a song that I loved when I was in college. And she's a British, um, I think, African Brit. um, And she's beautiful. I just think you a very powerful voice. So this got me through a lot of a lot of years in my late teens, early 20s. <laughs> let's hear it and let's close out this hour of Living Writers on WCBN FM, Ann Arbor. Thank you. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. East or west, where's the best for romance? Smile. But with a lover, I could hold my hair back and really laugh, really laugh. Thank you 
6 o'clock. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, WCBN-FM, y bienvenidos a la media hora norteña. Yeah, man. 